Just got back from Illinois. Locked the front door, oh boy. Got to sit down, take a rest on the porch. Imagination sets in. Pretty shoe I'm singing. Do, 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 looking out my back door. There's a comet doing cartwheels. Statue wearing high heels. Look at all the happy faces dancing on the wall. I now saw patrolling, listening to Buck Owens. Do, 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 look out my back door. That's life. That's what all the people say when you're riding high in April. You shot down in May. I know I'm going to change that tune when I'm back on top, back on top in June. I say that's life. As crazy as it may seem, some people get their kicks from stomping on a dream. And I know that if it's that way this year, July, I'm gonna roll myself up in a big ball and die. Bye bye. But fucks up. 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 On that maroney. On that maroney. Mashed potato. Do the alligator. Hello, Nitsipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipip
of White House Mummers, I've been watching the equivalent episode of Gaslight afterwards. And it's fascinating. So if you had taken the labels off of these shows, and I didn't know anything about them, and you made me watch them and said, which one is the HBO show and which is on one of those, uh, you know, Johnny Come Lately's like stars or epics or whatever the fuck, I would have said, oh, it's this Gaslit show. It has bigger stars. It's got Julia fucking Roberts as Martha Mitchell. It's got Sean Penn as John Mitchell. Uh, it's got a more traditional sort of prestige uh, narrative and character base. So, because it's got Martha Mitchell as you know the put upon wife who's speaking truth to power, but it's also got as a subsidiary uh, protagonist John Dean, who you know over the course of the movie, he or of course the show falls in love with a liberal and finds his conscience and all this. So it's a more conventional show from a point like with point of view characters that the audience is meant to sympathize with. Uh, star the uh, White House Bombers, you know, you got Woody Harrelson, yeah, but it's Justin Throw, you know, this, this is not on the same level of of of, of prestige uh, uh, cast, and also it's from their point of view, like those are the point of view characters, is Liddy and mostly E. Howard Hunt, a guy who the the movie the show is like kind of inching up towards suggesting uh, helped kill Kennedy, which has been the most interesting part of the show. White House Plumbers is that it seems to be taking a pretty uh, a stringent like point of view as opposed to just being get a load of these goofballs. Although get a load of these goofballs is the main enjoyment. But what strikes me is like these shows came out back to back and yet they, uh, they were developed like um, distant apart from each other in time enough that they represent two completely different epochs. Of uh of like uh culture pop culture understanding of like the moment and politics, so Gaslit is like one hundred percent a product of the Trump administration, uh, popular culture of hysteria and panic, like oh my God, Trump is a monster. Trump is going to kill us all. We have to stop him. We have to come together as Americans and recognize that this is not who we are. And like having calling it gaslit and making the centerpiece of it being Martha Mitchell getting slapped around by her security guard so she doesn't tell anybody about what's going on, uh, it gets that feeling. There's even a, a moment which just made my took my breath away when uh, uh, Martha Mitchell is arguing with John Mitchell about Nixon and she's like, Fuck, fucking Nixon, he's got small hands. She says, Nixon has small hands. Which is not anything anybody ever said about Nixon. That's the thing they say about Trump. Very obvious, very like, this is Trump, we're doing a Trump analog, and we're trying to get you to rise to your better nature, you pig-like Americans. Uh, whereas White House Glummers feels very much like a Biden-era show, where like Trump has come and gone the world is still here, shittier, but basically the same, and we're all vaguely embarrassed. And more than anything, we recognize our institutions as filled with pathetic losers at every level. And that it is a squalid and not a Shakespearean world that we're trapped in. And that is most exemplified by the uh, the performances of the two G. Uh, G Gordon Liddies. Uh, so Justin Thoreau is G. Gordon Liddy, 
uh, on Lighthouse Plumbers, and he is doing it as a a, a relatively surface level, like a buffoon, a, a guy who is uh, very full of himself, very pompous, but also incompetent, a very Coen Brothers-y type of take on uh, 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 Liddy. Just like he's got this kind of fake plummy accent and he just takes things very seriously while also being an idiot. And a Nazi, which they point out very clearly. Uh, and so it's, it's you know, it's funny, but it's also uh, one-dimensional. Shea Wiggum plays G. Gordon Liddy in Gaslit. And he is buffoonish and funny at times, but he is also terrifying. Like, I, there's like a snake-like uh, demonic aggression coming off of him. And the way that they treat Liddy and his penchant for putting his hand over flames and burning himself to show his will in White House Plumbers. I don't think they, they, they show him with the, with the uh, bandaid on. I don't think they ever show him like actually doing it. At one point he does it to show how, how much he can, he's going to not like he's devoted to not turning on, uh, on the president after getting arrested and he blows out the candle. But on Glasslet, the very first shot is of G Gordon Liddy holding the hand over the flame and reciting this, you know, Nazi speech about how will alone is what, uh, you know, def- pulls humanity out of the, the, the chaos of uncreation and, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and he's fucking scary. He's like clearly someone who would kill and maybe has killed in the name of what he calls the kingdom, which is, you know, the white supremacy fascist Republican Party uh, that uh, Trump era culture was freaking out about, and so they may he has to be scary because he is the boogeyman that this sort of politics represented by Nixon, but really represented by Trump, uh, has within it, and and which will be unleashed by these guys being unchecked by outside powers and other powers like the Democratic Party. Whereas I think that that danger in White House Plumbers has been defanged a little bit by the experience of what is what are these people really capable of? And, you know, the answer is January 6th, which a lot of people were freaked out about, but which in hindsight, I think those of us who say this is a bunch of goofballs blowing off steam have been vindicated by. Like, it didn't even set off some sort of stochastic violence campaign, you know? Uh, now, you know, there's still capable of petty grievance, petty uh, tyranny, fascism, and mass shootings, that's going to keep happening. But, you know, that's just like, it's like climate change. It's like microplastics infiltrating our fucking uh, genome and, and like what, cutting our life expectancy. Uh, you know, it's, it's part of the general decline era that we find ourselves in. It's not an apocalyptic rupture. Is Ted Lasso Protestant humor? Not just Protestant humor, Mormon humor. We can't forget um, when Mitt Romney dressed like Ted Lasso to give a Halloween present to his girlfriend, Kristen Cinema. Global Mormo. I mean, they do have global power. Uh, and they've gotten into the very highest ranks of American power and influence. 
They wanted it more, literally. They they hustled. They created a uh, a mythopoetic relationship to American capitalism that was less internally co- uh, conflicted than that of their fellow American Protestants. Okay, so that's White House bumpers. I I'll, I might have more to say when it's over, but for now, that's my impression, and it's kind of interesting to me. And I do say it's enjoyable, uh, but so far it's like sort of been, you know, sort of like with Thoreau's performance surface level. The most interesting thing is this teased element that, like, this is actually about the Kennedy assassination, much way the, which is much have uh, the same way as how uh, Oliver Stone imagined Watergate as as blowback from. The Bay of Pigs thing. I read two out of the three three body problems. I will read the third one soon. Uh, all right, so I got some more of these. I opened one of these Gulf War sets, and there's some good ones in this one. So I wanted to do a, a quick deck because there's at least one in here that I remember being very uh, fun. So first we got a Warbird, the old F-14 Tomcat. This is uh, this is Mavericks. This is Mavericks sh- uh, sh- ship. What do they call them? Jet. Highway to the Danger Zone. Highway to the Danger Zone. Going to have a dogfight in the Mediterranean with maybe it's Libya. Who knows? Airboat. Are they called airboats? So the F-14 Tomcat, baby, launched from either a carrier or a ground base, the Tomcat is a multi-role aircraft with a sophisticated radar missile system that enables it to simultaneously track 24 targets while attacking six with its Phoenix missiles. It can select and destroy targets up to 100 miles away, powered by two turbofan engines with 27,000 pounds thrust. Wow. It can fly higher than 56,000 feet. There are 114 Tomcats deployed in Operation Desert Storm. We love something that has multiple roles. I think they got rid of that, right? Or It seemed like for a while they were just stuffing all the roles into one. Like, that's what happened with the Bradley uh, fighting vehicle, too. You know, they, they try to make one thing everything. Have they gone? It seems like they've kind of gone back away to, uh, to more uh, specialized stuff, but I don't know. I think they're like, with the F-35, I think there are different types of the F-35 with different specializations, if I'm not correct, if I'm not incorrect, I think. Uh, so what's, so someone is, okay, this is very interesting. Someone is saying that the F-14 was decommissioned in part because it was not multi-role. Didn't, uh, they figured out other ways to do roles and the F-14 wasn't uh, role enough. The F-18 came along and was like, hey, you thought you were multi-role? I am uh, quad quad multi-role. Fuck you. Manufacturer, good old Grumman Corporation. I guess this is before the merger. Speed, Mach 2.3 uh, max. Range, 576 miles. Armament, 20-millimeter gun, four Sparrow missiles, or eight Sidewinder missiles, or six missiles, or six Phoenix missiles, and two Sidewinder missiles. I would go, if I'm doing my loadout, I'm doing six Phoenix and two Sidewinders, you know, to give me options. Crew two. 
Yeah, who are you going to intercept? Well, that what? Why? Well, who are you intercepting? There's no intercepting to do. All right, here we go. We've got military skill, the phonetic alphabet. Any any Wilco fans out there will know what this refers to. The phonetic alphabet. Over the radio, some alphabet letters sound alike. To avoid confusion, U.S. soldiers substitute words for letters. A message giving map coordinates. Z72B would be spoken Zulu72 Bravo. And here we go. Uh, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot, Golf, Hotel, India, Juliet, Kilo, Lima, Mike, November, Oscar, Papa, Quebec, Quebec, really? Romeo, Sierra, Tango, Uniform, Victor, Whiskey, X-Ray, Yankee, and Zulu. Love to call uh, White Trash Whiskey Tango. That's always fun. Golf. Here we go. Oh, it's, it's the judicial system, everyone. It's the judicial system. It's just a picture of the Supreme Court building. It's the judicial system. Getting really abstract here. A unique feature of the U.S. government is the power of the judiciary. Oh, brother, don't we know it. <laughs> oh, boy, we sure do know that. Uh, granted by the case of Marbury versus Madison in 1803, an amazing piece of jurisprudence where the... Uh, the uh, Judiciary ruled that it had the right to uh, uh, review legislation. Just said, hey, I get to do that. And the thing is, in a closed system like that, new adaptations to uh, the, the deliberative structure are going to come internally. Someone is going to claim the reins. And it'll, be, it'll always end up being the judiciary because they are separated, they have that bar bar uh, that barrier between them and direct politics, which means they can be trusted by elites more, which means they have more la latitude to act unilaterally. Elected leaders will always be checked by capital before they really change the rules of the game in any way. But you can trust the judiciary to hoard power because they will rule in favor of existing power. Yeah, you know, that the, the the Warren court was really a mirage that that obscured the real relationship between the court and American democracy, and that was because you know we were uh, there was this uh, necessary liberalization of uh, of social uh, order necessary to accommodate a uh, fully integrated global capitalist uh, uh, country. And not just anyone, but the number one one, the, the chairman of the board. The reality of living, being the global hegemon is that that particularism of the, of, the, of, Amer of the white America was no longer tenable. And it wasn't going to come from legislation. It was going to have to come from people who didn't have to worry about voting, getting voted on. And those were progressive changes. They had a progressive character 
they're necessary for any sort of effective class politics to exist, because otherwise you could just divide racially the working force and forbid the sort of solidarity that uh, becomes power. But it was not because of, uh, you know, some greater uh, uh, virtue of the justice system. But liberals have now liberals are being disabused of that, but it's been very difficult for them to get it through their minds. The judicial branch is one of three equal parts of the government, complementing the executive and legislative branches. The judiciary has the power to rule on the legality of laws as well as to make judgments on cases. From the top down, the federal judicial system is divided into three tiers, the Supreme Court, the federal courts, and the district courts. And here we go. We got another one of the one of the uh, members of the coalition, the UAE. UAE, folks, we got the UAE. UAE. United Arab Emirates uh, unites seven sheikhdoms. They gained their independence from Great Britain in 1971. During the 19th century, this area was called the Pirate Coast. Ooh, cool. And based its economy on shipping and Pearl diving. I think got to think piracy's got to be in there somewhere. I have read Endgame by Derek Jensen. That was one of the first uh, uh, radical political texts I got when I was like in high school. Today, oil rains and the United Arab Emirates enjoys one of the world's highest per capita incomes. Woohoo! It is a member of the United Nations and has taken an active role in Operation Desert Storm. They're just going the uh, active role. They're, they're there. They've got a pennant. They're waving it back and forth. Geographic area, 32,000 square miles. Population, 7.6 million. How many of those are native? Languages, Arabic, Farsi, and English. Predominant religion, good old Sufi Islam. 80% only? Interesting. Cat, maybe uh, Shia, probably, because there's Shia in the eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia, too. Uh, capital, Abu Dhabi. Government type, federation with power shared by central government and sheikdoms. Hmm, interesting way to phrase that. Head of government, Prime Minister Rashid Ibn Said al-Maktoum. Diego Garcia. Uh, good old Diego Garcia. The Diego Garcia. That's one of those uh, empire islands they got in the Indian Ocean, I believe. Diego Garcia, main, main island of the Chagos Archipelago, has been part of the British Indian Ocean Territory since 1965. Located, uh, they got, I'm not going to read it. They have its uh, coordinates if you want to call in a bomb strike. Diego Garcia has no permanent civilian population and is the site of a joint Anglo-American Naval Communication Center. During Operation Desert Storm, Diego Garcia served as an airbase for B-52 bombers. It was discovered by Portugal in the early 16th century. Ah, the Portuguese. Geographic area. All it's got is geographic area because there's nobody in there. 10.5 square miles. Give it up to Diego Garcia, folks. Where would we be without them? Here we go. These planes are always cool in movies. Uh, we got a military asset, the E3 Sentry uh, AWACS. This is the surveillance guy with the big dish for monitoring information. One of these guys got cooked at the beginning of Independence Day, if anyone remembers that. 
E3 Sentry AWACS. A militarized version of the Boeing 707, the E3 Sentry was an essential tool of the airborne combat operations in Operation Desert Storm. Its rotating radar dome monitored everything that moved on the ground or in the air as far as 250 miles away. U.S. and Allied air attacks were likely directed by the 20-person mission crew of the Sentry. Ah, oh, that's nice. They, they, they were likely direct. One of these might have called in the strike that blew up the Baghdad bomb shelter that killed 300 civilians. Wonder if they got a medal for that one. Manufacturer, good old Boeing Aerospace. Speed, 545 miles per hour, max. Time on station, six hours. Primary functions, airborne surveillance, command, control, and communications. Crew, 17 to 23. Here we go. The T-72, the T-62 main battle tank here. This is one of those Russian bad boys that the Iraqis had. The Russian tanks can't really beat the Russian tanks. Just such a striking profile on those bad boys. Uh, a Soviet-built main battle tank, the T-62, is similar to the American M-60 series in size and armament. The Iraqi tank is slightly faster but has less armor protection than the U.S. MBT. The T-62 has a larger main gun, 115 millimeters, versus the M-60's 105 millimeters. Ooh! Ouch! It fires at a slower rate, four rounds per minute, compared to six rounds per minute for the U.S. M-60. Suck it! We, we get boom, 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 boom. We're blasting off, baby. It's not as much force but it's it's quality it's quantity over quality that's the american motto and honestly that might be it manufacturer good old ussr speed 31 miles per hour range 280 miles armaments one 115 millimeter gun one 7.62 millimeter machine gun one 23.7 millimeter machine gun for anti-aircraft defense and crew four Hmm, interesting. Okay, this should be juicy. Intelligence file, Middle East history, present. It's Middle East history, present. I don't know what that means. We're present for, it's the, it's the history of the present. We are present for the history, kind of, uh, or we present Middle East, Middle East history. Don't get it. One key to understanding present Middle Eastern events. Okay. So they are saying it's the history of the present. Is Arab nationalism? Ain't that the truth? The Arab world is divided over whether to unite under a single principal political entity for the benefit of power and therefore recognition. Crucial to peace in the Middle East is for American Western nations to acknowledge Arabs for significance beyond terrorism, camels, and oil. The Husseins and Qaddafis will continue to rise because they represent the hopes of people who consider themselves ignored and mistreated. Oh, that's interesting. So they're saying that uh, U.S. policy in the Middle East is creating hostility to the United States and uh, solidarity among its people, and eventual military and political power through the Husseins and the Gaddafis. Nasser, of course, being the OG of this. Uh, yes, good old Arab nationalism. 
on the wane here in 91, we'd done our much, we'd, we'd, we'd done all we could to destroy it. Yeah. Cause the thing about like that kind of, uh, nationalism in the developmental context is it's pretty necessarily socialist to some degree or another because the only way you modernize is through uh, sovereign control of capital distribution. If End of story. If you are not setting the conditions of, of, of uh, development in your country in your political capital, then you are going to be turned into a tin pot uh, uh, Potemkin country that masks a foreign extraction regime. And this is, of course, one of the big reasons that the United States, uh, with its partners in Saudi Arabia, uh, carry off their Gladio B program of funding, arming, and supporting and propagating a radical Sunni fundamentalist Islam as a way to annihilate uh, uh, the secular political projects represented by Arab developmentalist nationalism. And then they do something like have a blowback, like 9-11. It's like, it's not really anything that was not intended. And in fact, at one level of consciousness or another that I'm not sure of, but definitely existed, sought and desired. Hmm. Uh, this is an interesting question. If we did have a pan-Arab republic, where would the capital be? Well, the natural answer would be Cairo, because not only is it uh, you know the, the most the capital of the most populous Arab state, but it is the cultural capital of the Middle East. Uh, Egyptian uh, culture, like television and movies and stuff, is the most watched. The Egyptian um, dialect is the one that you're most likely to hear in entertainments in the area. But for that very reason, maybe you'd want to go somewhere more neutral. Like Nasser tried to start that process by building the United Arab Republic between uh, Egypt and Syria, but eventually, the some faction of uh, of Syrians were not going to want to have their sovereignty uh, claimed by somebody in Cairo. So it would probably have to be a third new city built somewhere. Maybe it could be. Oh, you know what? Maybe it will be. Uh, the line. Maybe that can be the capital. Here we go. We got leaders. We got Javier Perez de Celiar. Javier Perez de Celiar. We got our UN motherfucking general secretary. Is he? Is he the general secretary? Yes. The secretary general of the United Nations. Selected to be the fifth secretary general of the United Nations in 1962, Javier Perez de Celiar has spent many years in the diplomatic service of his native country, Peru. A member of the Peruvian delegation at the first General Assembly of the UN in 1946, he was later appointed Peru's UN representative in 1971, although a superb international negotiator. Hmm. He was unable to resolve peacefully the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, which resulted in Operation Desert Storm. Sorry, buddy, you fucked it up. We gotta come in there and save everyone's ass by kicking it. Uh, born in Lima, Peru. Birthday, January 19th, 1920. That guy's dead, right? Yeah. Education, the Catholic University of Lima. And finally, another uh, Arab country to 
join in the coalition and the one that started it all really the the real kind of villains of the whole piece uh the fucking little shitty theocracy greedy for oil kuwait started all this nonsense by fucking with the border before operation desert storm began kuwait accompanied accompanied accomplished three stunning feats owned 20% of the world's known oil reserves qualified as the world's second largest exporter of oil and allowed the sheik to get half the profits of oil sales. Oil revenues permit a wide range of free social services for Kuwaiti citizens who pay no taxes. During the Iran-Iraq War, 1980-1988, Kuwait sided with Iraq. Geographic area, 6,880 miles. Population, 2 million. Language, Arabic and English. Predominant religion, Islam, although they're not specifying this time. Capital of Kuwait City. It says Kuwait, but it's Kuwait City. Government type, nominal constitutional monarchy. You know, it's nominal, all right? And the head of government is the Emir Sheikh Jabir al-Ahmad al-Sabah. There you go. The, the, the sheikh that launched a 1,000 uh, Scud missiles. Scott tissue with the wish you saw. Rap a dap a dow it all. It's lovely. When bloody shade is lonely instance. When bloody shade is lonely. I think that might be the first time I've ever done a uh, Red Hot Chili Pepper song. And not a very good one, too. Don't know why that got in my head. Uh, all right. We got one more pack here. I have been, I guess I've been Californicated. I think that's the only explanation. Uh, we've got here a military asset, the F-46 Wild Weasel. I think Israel will probably use nukes at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to use nukes at some point. I think neither one of us are going to be able to handle... Uh, the possibility of dismantling our power base because the base of our power is the metaphysical understanding that it will never be relinquished because we would not do what we do. Uh, we would not have the will to do as we did if we ever thought that we would face any sort of vulnerability because how could we expect anyone else not to Take our weakness as an opportunity to get some fucking get back, to get some revenge. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily has to happen, but I am saying that that is the assumed, like, visceral, subconscious belief that powers everyone in any position of authority in the United States. And it's because they can't bear to imagine a reconciliation on any terms. And that's what drives them forward towards annihilation. So I don't think any either country is built to uh, say no to that temptation. But we'll see. We'll see. Can't, can't know for sure. So we got this guy. Uh, this guy's the wild weasel. 
I played the wild weasel for many a year. I spent all my money and whiskey and McDonnell Douglas uh, Phantom F-11 airplanes. An evolution of the F-4 Phantom to the F-4G is responsible for suppressing enemy radar sites. Get out of here, radar. It does this by detecting and analyzing hostile radar signals. When a target is acquired, a high-speed anti-radiation missile, HARM, is launched to destroy the enemy site. Once the F-4G has destroyed enemy air radars, other aircraft fulfill their objectives. You know, HARM is a pretty... Uh, it's too badass a name for a missile that's just supposed to blow up radar dishes. Like, that's basically a missile that knocks over mailboxes, and it's called HARM. That's fucking metal. That should be something that, like, fragments into, like, living nanoparticles that dig into the flesh of anyone who's near the explosion and it like gets into their bloodstream and turns their blood into cock. That's a harm missile. By the way, we probably have those things. Uh, manufacturer, McDonnell Douglas, speed Mach 1.2 max, range 262 miles, combat. Armament, 20-millimeter cannon, harm, sparrow, shrike or sidewinder, missile, and bombs. Missile what bombs? Missiles and or bombs. Crew of two. Survival. That is a military skill. I would argue it's the most basic of military skills. If you don't have this one covered... If you don't have a good handle on survival, uh, you might want to consider another line of work. Many situations in combat may leave soldiers, seamen, or pilots cut off from the main group with no supplies. Surviving tra survival training and equipment will help them get keep going until help arrives, or they can return to friendly territory or their own. The, on their own. The most important aspect is survival. According to instructions in this U.S. military survival kit is keep your head. Native tribes live for generations in the open air, taking their living for nature. You can do the same. Hmm, we'll see. How many of these guys have ever done that? Best of luck, and remember that courage alone has won many a battle. I don't think that's the case. Okay, we got another one of these fat social democracies that's just getting rich and indolent off of a global killing murder machine. It's a tick on the back of the uh, of the rampaging Rottweiler of the world system, Norway. Uh, for more than two centuries, early Norwegians or Vikings ruled the North Atlantic, controlling islands near Scotland, Greenland, and Iceland, as well as Norway. Occupying the northwestern part of Europe, Norway stretches across the northern boundary of Scandinavia, bordering the USSR. It's a charter member of the UN, supply the naval unit. Congratulations. 125,181 square miles, population of 4.2 million, language Norwegian, predominant religion, evangelical Lutheranism. Capital Oslo, government type constitutional monarchy, the head of government, Prime Minister Jan Seder Sis. Sis? S-Y-S-S? -S -S? Sis. I got to get bifocals. My eyes are going. RIP to me. I honestly don't know. I might have had this card before, but I think it was Denmark. Very similar, except they got oil.
Intelligence file, chronology of events. Ooh, very important. Very important that you have the events chronologically arranged. If you want to understand what came first. On July 18, 1990, Iraqi President Saddam Hussein accused Kuwait of stealing $2.4 billion worth of oil from an Iraqi field. Talks over oil prices and a disputed border broke down on August 1st. Before dawn on August 2nd, Iraq invaded Kuwait and soon threatened Saudi Arabia. Unprecedented world cooperation spearheaded by the United States led to sanctions and finally war on January 16th, 1991. So there we go. Somebody says, events tend, do tend to happen one after another, I notice. Yes, you notice. We all notice. We all perceive them as happening one after the other. But in fact, all events happen simultaneously. We just are not in a position to perceive them that way. We got general, we got a leader here. We got a leader. We got a real leader. We got a streetwise Hercules who's going to lead us to victory. Uh, he doesn't at all look like a human fucking skeleton. General Alfred M. Gray. Look at this guy. Very well-named man. That is the grayest-looking dude I've ever seen. He is a terrifying gray man. I'm, I don't really like it. He looks like uh, I'm looking at him with the They Live glasses right now. Not a fan of this guy. Looks creepy. Back The back... Picture, it's like closer, unnerving. Don't like it. Don't like his face. Don't like him looking at me. General Alfred M. Gray, commander, United States Marine Corps. Enlisting as the U.S. Marine Corps in 1950, Gray served overseas with FMF Pacific, attaining the rank of sergeant before being commissioned second lieutenant in April 1952. As a major, he joined the 12th Marines and served in Vietnam. He advanced to Brigadier General in March 1976 and was promoted to Major General in February 1980 and Lieutenant General on August 29, 1984. Gray was promoted to General and became Commander of the Marine Corps on July 1, 1987. Wow, went up from an enlisted man. Didn't go to officer school. Interesting. Very rare. They got to keep that uh, wine track, beer track, uh, working class, professional class boundary somehow. And the uh, getting a commission, which is just a modernized version of the feudal thing of getting uh, authorization from the king to raise forces on your behalf and on his behalf. Born, Rahway, New Jersey, USA, baby. Jersey boy. Birthday, June 22nd, 1928. So this guy's probably dead too, right? Probably, yeah. Got, I'm going to put it down there. Anyone want to confirm that? I bet he's dead. Uh, he went to the Norwich University, Northfield, Vermont, USA, and Lafayette College, and Eastern, in East, I guess he got a degree eventually. Uh, graduate of Command and Staff College, Army War Challenge. Army War Challenge? Okay. Anyway, he fucking creeped me out. And we got another country, Honduras. 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 The good old Republic of Honduras. In 1502, Columbus discovered Honduras on his last voyage to the New World. In the first part of this century, U.S. Marines intervened on two occasions. 
The civil war in Nicaragua, 1981 to 1990, spilled over into Honduras when the Contra rebels used Honduras as a training, training area. The U.S. also used Honduras as a site for military exercises. What a coincidence. What a coincidence those two things were. Honduras supplied economic assistance to Operation Desert Storm. Economic assistance? It's fucking Honduras. It's one of the, these countries that where we denied any ability to democratically uh, allocate capital and created this Potemkin state and drained their lifeblood by turning it into a, a site of uh, essentially feudalism, if not slavery. And then they have to fucking pay us to blow up a country in the Middle East to maintain their oil dominance? God damn. Brutal. Geographic area, 43,277 square miles. Population, 5.1 million. Language, Spanish. Predominant religion, Roman Catholicism. Capital, Tegucigalpa. Government type, Republic. Head of government, President Rafael Leonardo Cajeras. And here we go. We got a M113 armored personnel carrier. Yeah, baby. We love to carry personnel in an armored fashion. We're just going to be driving these around the streets of the United States in the next five years. Uh, and half of them are going to be fucking electric. Like they put out more carbon uh, to make and maintain than a fleet of uh, gremlins, a fleet of AMC gremlins. But you know what? They're, uh, you plug them in so you're a good person. More, uh, more than 50 nations employ variations of the M113 for their armed forces. This light, less than 11 tons, aluminum-armored vehicle is powered by a diesel engine. The M113 can carry 12 combat-equipped troops or up to 2 tons of equipment. Fully amphibious, it can cross... Inland waterways traveling at 3.6 miles per hour using its tracks for propulsion. Manufacturer, FMC Corp. Speed, 40 miles per hour max. Range, 300 miles. Armament, one 12.7 millimeter machine gun. And a crew of uh, two with 11 troops. Every town, yeah, every cop, every police office in America has one of those now. Uh, the military skill, range. I assume this is uh, practicing your gun. If it is, there's no gun. It's just an empty field. It's an empty football field. Is that the Cowboys? This is a Cowboy Stadium. This is very abstract. I don't know what this could possibly mean. Range. Estimating the range. Oh, okay. And they're using that as a way to, to read range. Hmm. Estimating the range or distance of objects is one of the most difficult and indispensable skills for a soldier to learn. U.S. soldiers often estimate the number of American football field lengths. There we go. We've got to be above football, baby. To judge distance. Objects seem closer if they are brightly colored. The weather is clear. The sun is in front of the objects or they are seen from the sea. Their range appears farther if they are dark. There's fog, rain, or haze. The sun is behind the objects or there is camouflage. It's tough, folks. If you need to assassinate anyone while they're playing football in Dallas, it's difficult to get the range. We've got reconnaissance. This is another thing that you got to have for intelligence. It's it's just a fucking, it's one of those, uh, is that even? I think that's the AWACS. 
Or it might not even be. I don't know. I don't think it is. I don't see the dish. A French word, reconnaissance, refers to actions that provide timely, accurate information about the enemy and the terrain controlled by the enemy. This information is vital to making tactical decisions. Reconnaissance is often shortened to recon. Many military planes, satellites, ships, and other vehicles are designed for this important purpose. It's right. That's right. It's very important what you do. Don't feel like you're a loser just because you're running around looking for things and not actually fucking any shit up. All right. Uh, wow. We've got a real... We've got a goat on our hands here. It's go it's we're talking goat time in terms of survivors in the insanely cutthroat realm of uh of Middle Eastern politics. We got Haifaz Assad, the guy who kept it who held it the whole time, and who has his kid, even though his chosen heir got wiped out, his ophthalmologist kid, his ophthalmologist second son, gets thrust into the spotlight and he holds on to it. Uh, I'm not the first person to say this ever, but uh, Jeremy Strong should absolutely play uh, Bashar Assad in a film. And you could even uh, you could honestly argue that he is basically playing Assad on Succession right now. I mean, looks identical, has the same vibe, but his dad, the dad, the 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 Logan of the Assad clan. The president of Syria's Haifaz al-Assad was an active participant in anti-French demonstrations during World War II. After Syria became independent from France in 1946, he continued to be politically active and joined the Arab Ba'ath Socialist Party around 1943. Nominated defense minister on February 23, 1933, he retained his position as commander of the Air Force. Haifaz al-Assad was elected president of the Syrian Arab Republic by a public referendum on March 12, 1971. That's so nice of them. And he got that treatment because he signed on to the war. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're ba you're basically the same guy as Saddam Hussein, but you're coloring within the lines. Even though there's kind of good evidence that he's the one who actually did the Lockerbie bombing, he knew how to make himself uh, pliant enough to the powers that be uh, to avoid Saddam's treatment, and so he gets to be to he gets to have a public referendum. Born uh, in Kirdaha, Syria. Birth date, March 1930. Education, elementary in Kirdaha, Syria. Secondary school in Lakatia, Latakia, Syria. Air Force College, Syria. That's the guy. Good old Haifas. He held on, and he, he passed it on. And none of that is good. Good for him, but yeah. Better than the alternative you could be arguing. And that's the real tragedy. And, and the fact that, the fact is, the fact that has to be remembered is that this context is being set at every level by the United States. Like everybody else is having to make decisions in a greater context of American hegemony. And that constant pull to break open your, your country's economy like a fucking coconut and feasting on the meat and hollowing you out, and preventing any uh, any capital to stay in the country, air profit rather. 
minimal profit. Like that is the directive of uh, international American-led finance as it encountered the rest of the world and the post-war era. And the directive was the same everywhere. Minimize the amount of profit that stays here, maximize the amount that comes to the United States. And the only thing that prevents that is the resistance of the institutions of that state. And where they could resist, they did, and they held on. And where they could not, they didn't, and they were uh, hollowed out. So everybody is operating in that context. And so everybody who we consider a monster of this era is acting out of a, a, a necessity to hold power uh, in, in a situation where the fucking uh, the space balls are sucking the oxygen out of your country. They've got the giant spaceship with the vacuum cleaner. How are you supposed to behave? France, uh, somebody's talking about France's relationship to their colonies in Africa. That's a wild situation because the French really did, uh, they're the ones who were the most reluctant. And I think it's because they were the farthest of the three main uh, uh, I guess no, I'm sorry. The U.S. like did not have a formal uh, empire by that point. Other, you know, uh, comparable to the European powers. But by the end of World War II, the top two were England and France. England was closer to us. France was closer to the outside. It had also been invaded and occupied by uh, Germany and had basically been racked by civil war and fascism. The Dutch, too, yeah. The, the French kicked and screamed the hardest. I mean, how many times did de Gaulle almost get killed? The British were uh, relatively uh, happy to let go compared to the frogs. And part of that, the legacy of that is that they weren't content to just say, all right, fine, you're independent now. Good luck with that. Oh, what's that? You need money? <laughs> Oops. They wanted more significant guarantees. So there's a French-backed currency in the uh, former French Maghreb that, that they're uh, obligated to use. So that means that there's, their monetary policy is held in Paris directly, not through intermediary institutions like it is for other countries. Which is all part and parcel of France's attempt to carve out a zone of autonomy within the greater NATO uh, power structure. Because they're always too big for their britches. They're always the biggest boy on the block, the actual block of Europe. Most population and uh, most robust agriculture before Germany united, of course. Oh, yes, the Portuguese. Yeah, they really wouldn't let it go under, under the old Estado Novo. So much so that the army itself had to say, fuck this, and carry out a left-wing coup, Carnation Revolution. We talked about that before. I mean, I don't think France has really been, like, out of 
I don't think France has not been militarily involved in Africa for, at any point. Like, I don't think it ever stopped intervening in militarily in Africa. Those forces have been active that whole time for, in some way or another, fighting somebody. Gaddafi, what have you. And now it's really the British who are the most uh, most plangently anguished by the loss of their empire because it's finally sunk in what decline looks like. They don't like it. Tell me quick. I haven't read The End of the World is Just the Beginning by Peter Zahan, but it sounds intriguing. I just Googled it. Mm. Oh, baby. Somebody asked if there's uh, any chance of electoral reform in the United States. Uh, we're actually, the only thing I can think of that might ever happen in the near future, and we're kind of close, we're not a few states away from it, is enough states passing the National Popular Vote Compact. They're pretty close. Minnesota just uh, joined. If you flip a couple of houses, you could do it in like the next couple of election cycles. For those who don't know what that is, it is a uh, piece of legislation that, uh, that states can pass through you know, their uh, legislatures and then have the governor sign it that says uh, if... Uh, states that add up to a majority of electoral votes all sign this legislation also, then our state will instruct uh, the, leg or the, the state government will like instruct its electors to vote for whoever won the national popular vote, irregardless, irregardless of the vote in the particular state. Although, honestly, if they tried that, I don't know what would happen. <laughs> I mean, talk about uh, waving a flag at the bull. But that's one that I can actually see something happening. But, you know, like abolish the Senate. Anything that would require a constitutional amendment is literally inconceivable in the current conditions. The sort of unanimity, the sort of bipartisan... Uh, a consensus that you need on major issues to pass a constitutional amendment is uh, unthinkable.
I mean, it, it's very fitting that the last one that passed was about uh, Congress can't raise their salary until they have an election coming up or some bullshit. Like, oh, they're making too much money in Congress. Yeah, that's where the corruption comes. Their paychecks. And that's, of course, Congress, all those little demons in the political system are happy to pass that. Oh, these rubes think our salary is what matters. Yes, sir, we're not going to raise those taxes. Oh, well, oh, well. Meanwhile, they're uh, eating uh, uh, endangered animal meat at the cafe at the child zoo of their billionaire benefactors. I mean, people say, like, they actually need to pay uh, Congress people more. But I think the real solution is good old sortion. But that's in a context where class conflict has been removed and you're administrating rather than sublimating class conflict into ritual, which is what we do in this country. Sortion. It means having uh, people uh, selected by lot. Yeah, congressional jury duty. But... You know, this is a perfect example of why no reform will ever really be a magic bullet. And it's not really something to focus too much on when you're this behind the eight ball as we are. Is that you can imagine a bunch of reforms making uh, voting, you know, uh, a, a better, a, better able to reflect like what people's opinions are and their will. But what that will is, is already shaped fully by class forces which means that the actual navigatable band of political choice is already radically restricted. So changing the makeup of the electorate can have only a limited effect on that. And like if you just took a system we have now and replaced the Congress we have with Sorshin, you're, you're a congressperson for two, two years, uh, and that's it, then the existing structures that reproduce power would just adapt to that. Because you got a bunch of just regular people showing up in Washington with no idea what the fuck's going on. Who's going to tell them what's happening other than creatures of the system? Yeah, no, I think that, uh, that we are really going to see the, the states live up to their reputation as the uh, as Brandeis's laboratories of democracy, uh, but it's going to be much more like meth labs of democracy, and that's means some states are going to get some pretty terrifying legislation, and but some other ones are going to see new possibilities open. And as as always, the hole in the center is just going to keep bigger, get bigger and bigger.
Yeah. Now, I don't even think we'll get the divorce. We'll stay together for the kids, i.e. the U.S. dollar and the uh, U.S. military and 5,000 nuclear missiles and uh, the NATO and all that, you know. Just uh, the idea that there's like a Bill of Rights that, that means the same thing in every state will just not exist anymore. There will be bespoke bills of rights. There will be bespoke understandings of public uh, public legality. But the experience of living in all of them will largely be determined by your class. Voting will be done by people moving, and the poorest everywhere will suffer pretty similar levels of debasement. Somebody said uh, that it's hilarious to think that default is going to happen. And I do understand that, yes, every everything in the system says, no, don't do that. The, like, nobody in it actually wants it, except for probably a few dullards in the house. But the technicians at Chernobyl didn't want to blow up the plant. That wasn't what they were doing those tests for. Not great, not terrible. It happened because there was a chain of fuck-ups that nobody was aware of that had undermined the system's st uh, stability to a level that no one had recognized until it exploded. Because, like, they'll probably get a bill together but even that, they're pushing it. If they get a bill together, it cannot be won with just Republican votes. And there are plenty of Democrats who feel like they can't sign off on what the Republicans are going to get out of these negotiations. And of course, if you could say, oh, they're going to give in, of course they're going to give in. That's what they're... You could, you could say it's because they're sellouts, but it's really because they feel responsible and they don't want to be responsible, which is not what you have in the Republican caucus. They don't care. Not all of them, but sufficient of them to make it so the actual will of every person of influence and power throughout the entire deliberative process is unable to push it across the goal line. Now, at that point, do the Democrats break the glass that they put around themselves? Mime style. Maybe that level of exigency would make them do it. Maybe something that they could do, they wouldn't do anyway, just because of a internal taboo, which are real. They are as real as anything else. Who knows? I don't know. I've given up predicting. I think they'll probably make a bad deal freeze on spending, some cuts on something. But it's going to be close, and it's going to involve probably m multiple votes as they try to wrangle this caucus that, like, cannot be wrangled. They got a veto. They got a one-vote veto on this motherfucker. One person can say, I don't like how you're doing this, and then they have another fucking vote for speaker.
like people talk about if they do the coin thing, that is one of those options that might be real in an abstract sense, but is not real to the people that matter. They don't perceive it the same way you do. Their life experience, the experience that put them in that room and you on the internet makes to them that possibility an impossibility. Not, not something that they could do but are choosing not to do, but something that they are internally prevented from doing. Through a lifetime of reinforcing experience. Oh, man, sequestration. That was fun. We're probably going to get some version of that again. That's what happened the last time this occurred under a bungler. And it's when you consider how many people are now have fucked the dog this bad on this negotiation who were there for the fucking bungler negotiations when the party was even was like when the Republicans were less deranged than they are now. They made a deal where it was just a broad across-the-board cut of spending, including some defense spending, which was kind of amazing. Uh, and then uh, it was like a dead man switch. Like, if they did not come to a deal, then it would get cut automatically. And they cut it for a while, but then it just went away as soon as Bush got it, or as soon as Trump got in there. Just went away. They just, like, forgot it. If you like social spending, you kind of have to root for Republicans, don't you? Because you can say, oh, they cut it. Well, everybody cuts it, you know? Everybody cuts programs. Clinton ended welfare as we know it. But there's much less pressure to actually cut. in the. Forget what they put in the budget, what they actually comes out of the, the, out of the legislative process when you don't have Democrats in power. I could see a sequestration maybe that did not touch the military this time. So less of a compromise. They're going to have a hell of a time getting those rubes, though, to vote for it. I don't know. Maybe they don't need them that many. The discharge position, petition thing never went anywhere. And I guess it's because even those, you, you'd, you'd think, oh, those moderate, like, you know, uh, tri-state Republicans who won, Biden, uh, who won Biden districts in 2022, they don't want to have the debt ceiling go kablooey. True. But they also have to get renominated by a Republican Party that has wrapped itself around these absolutist uh, positions. And they don't want to be a name on a discharge position that's with a, every other Democrat. At least I assume that's what happened. Maybe, they, maybe it didn't even get that far. Who knows? Whatever happens, well, you can be sure that it will be really fucking stupid. That's the one guarantee we have. We might invade Mexico. We'll see. Certainly... It's it's on the eschatological bingo card, that's for sure. 
So he asked about that, uh, that drug cartels don't exist book, which I haven't read yet. I've heard is very good. I'm intrigued by the princ- by the by the uh, concept because I always like that sort of reframing thing. Although I always I I'd always assumed that like the plaza system for a while was real anyway. Like you had that, you had you know divided territories, but I could definitely see an argument that it broke down just into relative anarchy in the last twenty years. Amlo is uh, fighting for his life right now, indeed. Amlo, take my energy. So far from God, so close to the United States. Thing is, now we're in a state, thanks to the world getting flatter, where pretty much every country on earth can say that. Someone really wants to know what I think the biggest catalyst for the US, for the working class losing the class war. And do I think it's possible to recreate class consciousness? I mean, I've talked about that a lot, and I think about it a lot. Like, where is the tipping point? Where is the hinge point? LOL. And, you know, it's somewhere in that uh, early 20th century conflagration between the uh, beginning of World War One and the end of World War Two. And I mean, you might say, oh, you know, it was even doomed then. And you might be right, but, you know, those questions can only be settled through open force, open contests of force, which is what we finally got on the global scale from 1914 to 1945. As to whether we can recreate it, I don't think what we understand as class consciousness can really be recreated, but that does not mean that the human collaborative Holy Spirit cannot reconsecrate a uh, relationship to the self and others that binds and 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 points towards uh, cooperation, solidarity, uh, survival, and eventual victory. I just don't know what it'll look like. I do think it's being built under our feet right now, though. The Spider-Man Whopper? Ooh. I like that transition. What makes it Spider-Man? Is it food coloring or something? Oh, a terrifying red bun. Mm. Yeah, I don't like that. 
Not a huge Burger King fan in general. I will. I do tip the cap that they have. They are the only fast food place that goes with the grill, flame grill kayfabe, and then they put in that flavor to make you feel like, hey, this is like a this is like a cookout burger. You know, cookout does that too. Shout out, but nationally, I mean, but not that good, not that great. It's always a little chewy. Yeah, the Impossible Burger is not bad. I think honest, I think that we might never get a uh, plant-based McDonald's burger because they didn't have to adapt first because they're the market leader and because changing that direction of a ship that big is an incredible, immense undertaking. So guys like Carl's Jr. and uh, and Watt Burger King got in there and. and I think they've all kind of lost money on it. I don't think it's been terribly successful. I think that's because the sort of virtue that you are selling when you're selling a non-meat fast food doesn't translate to a person who is in the mode of consuming fast food. Because there's two reasons to go plant-based, right? There's uh, ethics and health. And the fast food experience really militates against anybody who is overly concerned with either of those things. Like, we hit the number of people who are like, I really want to eat a burger, but I, I don't want it to be a dead animal. And also, uh, I don't want it to be fucking walnuts or whatever the hell. There's a cap on that. Most people are like, I don't give a fuck. I'm, I'm at fucking Taco Bell. I want, I'm at Burger King. I honestly kind of think the Burger King, or it's interesting, Del Taco out here in California, they have the plant-based everything. They got plant-based tacos, plant-based burritos. None of that for Taco Bell. And some people say it's because they're already plant-based. Like, there's no meat in that fucking uh, beef. And you know what? I honestly wouldn't be able to tell the difference because it's just such a deep... Uh, Proustian resonance, the entire Taco Bell experience. And so by the time, you know, talk, McDonald's is like gearing up to do it, they look around at the market and they're like, oh, it's, there's no percentage in this. Let's just put burgers on the grill now. That's their move. That's their innovation they're doing now. We're going to put burger grill, we're going to put grilled onions on there so that it has, tastes more flavory. Get more flavor on there. Uh, there's one plant-based thing that I, I definitely consume a lot of, and it's the plant-based ground beef. Uh, and it is honestly because I have found that uh, it is better, that it makes a bolognese that is... Obviously, it's not going to be as rich and as satisfying as a uh, as a meat-based bouillonnaise, but it's going to be less heavy, and it's easier. You don't have to worry about like uh, separating the fat and stuff. Like it's easier to make a bouillonnaise, and for like uh, ground beef tacos, 
the that plant-based meat like absorbs the taco kit. It absorbs that taco seasoning better even than beef does. So I like those things because, you know, it's not much better for me. And it's honestly not really that much more uh, ethically superior. You know where they get the palm oil for the fucking Brian burgers? They're going up. They're going up to blessed uh, bodhisattva orangutans and putting the Anton Sugar captured bolt gun to their foreheads so you can have fucking Beyond Burgers. And it's certainly not any better for anybody, you know? So, But it actually, like, is more enjoyable for those particular meals for me. So, And that's where most people are with food. The moral imagination required to uh, really deny ourselves the sensuous pleasures that we have been reduced to. Uh, that's uh, it's a tall order, you know. Uh, it's it's a lot to ask, and nothing at the same time, you know. Uh, it's the belief that there's something more and something greater that uh, compels you to push beyond those things. And that only comes from experience, which you either have or you don't, you know? Everybody get, should, everybody needs to both, at the same time, give themselves a break and uh, push themselves much harder. I know I have to do both of those things. But I think they do go together. Because one of the things that prevents us from pushing forward and, and asking anything of ourselves is the sense, oh, that we can't be forgiven. So what's the point? But if, if there's nothing that's unforgivable in the grandest scheme, and I think that's true, uh, then there's no reason not to try to do what you know is right. It's there. It's buried, it's muddy, it's, it's uh, occluded, but it's there. Oh, man, so many microplastics. We got so much microplastics. We went straight from lead to plastic. It's amazing. As soon as we got the lead out, we added plastic. Yeah, the Gen Xers have gotten both. Wow. They got the tail end of the of the of the uh they got the tail end of the um lead and then they got the front end of the plastic and then they've been just getting the plastic ever since. Damn. Yeah, I think uh the, the Gen X meltdown is gonna be even more interesting than the than the boomer meltdown has been. Because at this point, the boomers are actually pretty old now. And, and even though they're mostly, like, actually insane, they're also actually decrepit. But the boomers are, like, 
their their wick is is hitting the end, and they are still relatively spry. Oh, I love you too. Thank you, fluid show. Yeah, I think of the human body as a as a. Uh, I guess battlefield is too judgmental as a, a zone of interaction. How about we put it that way between different transcendent uh, uh, threads, th th things that go uh, extend beyond like the limited individual consciousnesses of the people that they infiltrate. You've got, of course, the great, uh, the great microbes, yeast and, uh, uh, Ergot, you know, you've got the different types of uh, fungi that activate the Dionysian and uh, Apollonian uh, habits of mind and culture around wheat or mushrooms. And they're in there battling it out, moving around, melanging. You've got, of course, the, the new extrusion of, uh, of, of plastic, lead, where they're all in there. And we are just being pushed around by them as they interact and wind around one another. And our, and our history that we make is our largely unconscious propulsion through the system of interactions. Who up bioaccumulating plastics? I think the safe answer is all of us. We're all doing that. All right. Catch you on the flap, doodle. <laughs>